Hello and welcome to the Sports Loft Podcast, where we talk about the intersection of technology with the media and sports business. Today we have a very distinguished member of the sports business uh, to come and uh, talk to us about the media landscape in the sports industry. But before we get to that, a reminder to please uh, subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Go to our website at sportsloft.co and sign up for our newsletter, which comes out weekly on a Friday. And uh, please follow us on social at sportsloftHQ. With that, let's get to the introductions. Joining us today is Nick Bourne, who is uh, not only a Sports Loft Advisory Board member, but has a long and distinguished career in the uh, sports industry and the media industry. Uh, Nick is currently the Chief Strategy Officer of ATP Media, uh, but has a big background in a lot of other things, which I will let him tell you about rather than me boring you about it. Um, Nick, welcome to the Sports Loft Podcast. Yanni, thank you very much for, for having me. Excited to be here. Excellent. Well, listen, why don't we start with this? Why don't you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do on a day-to-day basis, and then we can dive into your background and we can start chatting about um, the media landscape in the current uh, uh, sports industry and how, how people are capitalizing on it or not, as the case may be. Well, well, who I am, absolutely. What I do day-to-day is, is none of your business, Yanni, but um, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get into <laughs> Into, get into other stuff but so uh so yeah i'm the, the chief strategy officer at atp media i've been with the business here for just over a year or so and atp media is the uh commercial rights holder for the for the atp tour um before that uh i uh, was one of the founding team of a business called copper 90 which was a football media business and over the course of about seven or eight years we grew that from a um, a, a merry band of sort of content producers into um, uh, yeah a, a consumer consumer brand in in the world of football uh, and challenged a lot of uh, sort of um, accepted norms on that on that journey on the way through which was lots of fun. Let's uh, let's start here. You're you're with um, ATP Media, which is an organization that exists specifically in order to manage the rights of the ATP Tour. When you hear media when you talk about media what does that mean to you and how do you look to leverage it in order to drive the best benefits for the atp that is a very specific uh specific and good question so as we um it's really sort of strikes at the at the heart of what um uh sort of a modern commercial rights holder is trying to to, to work its way through fundamentally it's about um, the, the the audiences and the value of those audiences that we reach and the value that that audience represents to the person that's carrying that, whether that is predominantly a sort of a, a broadcaster or a pay TV sort of that, that live carrier or it's other, um, other platforms around there. And that really is where um, there's been so much development, as we all know, um, over the past decade or so. And it continues to continues to change, and uh, with every couple of years, there are new chapters to that too. And so, we might have been sitting here five years ago thinking that uh, the Facebooks, the YouTubes, and others of this world were going to turn up with big checks and um, be the the white knight to to sports sort of uh, TV audience issues. And actually, as we sit here today, that that hasn't been the case, but. Also, it's not a case that um, uh, sort of TV partners or broadcast partners aren't a part, a significant part of the solution in the future. We've actually seen great 
resilience and, and innovation within those businesses um, uh, in terms of how they're thinking about how their audiences are changing and how the principal platform through which they reach that audience is changing, but the underlying business underneath it is still the same. So we always look very closely at the North American market and take the NFL's recent recent renewals um, it's with the same partners, but the way that the rights are structured, it's enabling those partners to deliver those rights across their streaming platforms as well as their uh, their more traditional platforms, but it's still the same partner underneath it. And I think that's a, a big piece of this is that the market, the advertising market, they want that choice of partner. They want an NBC to exist. They want an ESPN to exist. They don't just want um, a duopoly. And at the same time, too, consumers see the value in those partners, whether that's um, uh, a Sky across Europe or a Eurosport or uh, or others, too. Um, there is uh, there's great value in those brands, um, not just on the on the commercial side to their partners, but also from the the audience side with their customers as well. Mm. And you've taken a very interesting journey from consultant to um, what what we'd probably describe as an uh, outsider, not as a specific rights holder with Copper 90 and launching a business that was focused around using content to drive an audience and build a build a fan base uh, to now into uh, uh, into an organization that has a, a, a massive fan base and a distinct audience and an understanding of who those are. How has that journey been and how has your prism of um, media and content and data, the old aphorism, you know, content is king, now people are saying data is king, you know, and the audience is king, the fan is central. How, how has that, talk, talk to us a little bit about that journey and how it's, uh, how it's kind of gone for you. Yeah, being on the, on the outside looking in as we were at, at Copper, so the Copper 90 started as a, as a YouTube channel in September 2012 and I joined the business in March of, of, of 2013 when it was it was a sort of a growing YouTube channel at that point and it had come out of a, um, uh, a, a digital focused sort of commercial production business. So Gun For Hires doing content for the likes of Nike or Red Bull or, or Adidas and others and stuff like that. And at that point in time, YouTube had a thing called its originals process. And so YouTube had been around um, for a good chunk of time at that point, maybe sort of, I don't know, sort of five, six years or, or whatever. Somebody will, will know the, the the actual sort of proper timelines around it. And they'd got to that point where they realized um, if they wanted to start to drive um, better ad rates on platform, they needed to have better quality content on platform. And so rather than marketing YouTube, they would put that marketing money into content creators on the platform. It started off in the US. Um, they created a process and people would basically pitch for commissioning checks under a range of different genres. Um, and they brought that process to Europe and we pitched it was Royal Wee because it was before before I got there. The, the business pitched uh, for a European football channel. And at the time, uh, YouTube had done a deal with Gillette to, to buy the highlight rights to a bunch of European football soccer leagues, put that on YouTube um, but on a, under a Gillette channel. And so Gillette was then doing a massive ad buy across the platform and they wanted a, a football channel um, on, on the platform. And there were kind of um, sort of many dozen of the great and good of, sort of sports broadcasting and production pitched for this. 
and everybody pitched for hey we're gonna uh, we're gonna get some highlights we'll do some tips and tricks we'll do some magazine shows and if you had any more money we'll, we'll buy better highlights was kind of the the rationale um, uh, and we turned up and said we're not gonna buy any highlights because if you're a um, sort of a target YouTube kid um, you can get those highlights anywhere legally or illegally and so actually there's no real value in that to this audience what there isn't is um, sort of quality programming focused at that audience that's available between when the games are on because we're not trying to try and hijack the live and at the same time too we're not just padding padded shoulder content this is actually we want to create programming on the level of, of that audience um, and to be fair to, to, to and YouTube, can I they went for it can I jump in there just out of out of curiosity for that uh, for that because it's it's a very instant question around that did you come from a position of knowing there was an audience that was being underserved and knowing how to get to that or was it a point of actually we believe that this content will drive an audience and therefore build from the ground up what, what, what was what was that approach so the the business had uh, experience of building a um a first person game on facebook a football game on facebook this was in the the days of farmville and zinger and all of that kind of stuff and the the business behind copper 90 built that game and it was a it, the, the game was basically predicated on um you you play the life of a footballer and your sort of exploits on the pitch and your success is actually also driven by your off-pitch storylines so they then did, mm. um, if you remember that uh, Nike ad, that sort of first person Nike ad where um, Wayne Rooney turns to you and you, um, uh, you, you've got yeah. to sort of shoot. It was all in, all in that, sort of, um, that sort of first person off pitch stuff. And uh, the guys built a really big audience through that. It was obviously the, the value of it got undermined when Facebook turned around and it went from costing you cents to acquire um, um, a new player to sort of dollars. And so that sort of um, mm. uh, undermined the opportunity of that. But they built um, a very big, significant, I think it was about sort of, uh, they had 15 million registrants and like something like one and a half million monthly active users on that game at, at its peak. And a, a really big, young, um, global football audience. And we realized from that understanding around it that they had a totally different view on the game that at that point in 2012-13 were just not being served through where they could get football. So they were desperately pressing refresh on their club website or sort of going through sort of uh, what might be on Twitter. And that was it. There was nothing else out there. And so when when we started to make this programming it was and back to that sort of being on the outside and sort of working your way in it was uh people as in people as in the established sort of sports community didn't understand it it was an anathema to what uh is put out on broadcast and so they didn't they didn't like it so they feared it um and didn't sort of mm. really want to engage with it uh until we got to a point where we had sort of blue chip commercial partners working with us and not choosing to work with them um, and I remember I got a call from uh, from ESPN Europe, a really lovely chat there called called Alan Fagan, and uh, he rang me up and said, "Can you come in for a for a meeting?" And like we're in this funny little loft in in Clerkenwell in London, and Alan was in like Disney Towers in in Hammersmith, so I sort of went went down there, and he said, "I got two questions for you." He says uh, one, how did you how did you sell that HTC deal for um, Champions League? 
and two, how big's your sales team? I said, oh, okay. <clears throat> Uh, well, I can tell you, sales team is, is me. You're looking at it. We don't really have a sales team. And two, how do we sell it? Well, he, he rang us up and said, I really love your show. Um, we're a Champions League sponsor. Can we sponsor that? And uh, and that was it, really. But it, it really was. We were creating something that wasn't available in the market. and people The value it. of great content. Yeah. Sorry, carry on. So, so it's, the, it's the value of great content that drives that that drives that interest, right? And yeah, exactly. Um, I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that Peter was a bit floored by that. Yeah, no. The um, obviously the the sales process got a bit more complicated when more people started making good content. Um, but the sort of the the fundamental of it, which is having a, having a really good understanding of your audience and understanding. Um, how that is differentiated versus what they get from other platforms and other places and really trying to um, deliver against that uh, still stands the test of time today. Um, I guess it's, it's that much harder today with just sort of the, the scale of teams and volume creating content around everything that people trying to find a distinctive tone of voice and to cut through with that on a continued and sustained basis is really the challenge. And that's kind of where all power and strength to enduring brands that have been able to do that, whether that's a Sky, whether that's a, an ESPN, or whether that's something um, uh, like uh, more sort of digital platforms and channels as well. But it's, um, that, that really is the, is the challenge. And what were the, what were the biggest challenges to a challenger business like that coming from the outside in? Uh, and especially as, as, shoulder programming or non-live, non-highlights started to become uh, a lot more mainstream. What were the challenges in terms of actually continuing to produce and continuing to be able to uh, engage engage an audience? Yeah, it's, um, and yeah, it, it is a, it, it's a, it's a challenge to sort of stay fresh. And at the, at the time we were often sort of compared to like vice media, but for football. And so it was sort of hmm. vice were getting sort of hammered with uh, okay, you're young now, but like in ten years' time, they're gonna they're gonna get older and age out. What are you gonna do about that? And it's sort of it's not really a very fair question to get asked by investors because it's like it's we're gonna be committed to staying young and relevant um, to that audience. It's sort of uh, you don't really need to worry about that. You shouldn't be asking us that sort of a question. But it was. Uh, it, it it really came from um, effectively empowering, em employing and then empowering our audience in our business. So whether that was the fact that rather than our creative director should be a guy with loads of TV experience opining on what should happen or whether it should actually be um, a kid that joined as a shooter director and then within three years was actually promoted to um, he's not really a kid. He's a fully fledged adult, but like to being our creative director and, and that guy, that guy never looked back. He was absolutely fantastic um, and continues to work in, in, in that business today. It was really about um, empowering and employing and supporting the people that intuitively understand that audience rather than waiting for the, for the old guys in the corner to tell you what's good or not. It's kind of really let it out there and, and let it, let it breathe, but keeping it fresh and refreshed on an ongoing basis was tough Obviously, the great thing about sport and why sport has that returning value is it's that it's that drama series that renews each year. It's it's better than Succession series three because it comes back um, and it keeps coming back and, it, and it's going to have those those storylines that you can't predict. So where we were able to sort of 
um, set our watch by is there a Euros, is there a World Cup? It's Champions League knockout stages from the spring. It's kind of it just constantly sort of renewed like that. But at the same time, it was it was challenging because going from being the only guys talking about it, so everybody thinks you're mad, to suddenly everybody going, well, they're onto a good thing. We're going to do one of those. Um, and then suddenly you're like, all oh, right, there's a whole load of noise around here. How do we cut through? And the, the challenge there mm. obviously is, and all through that period, there was loads of different pathways or shortcuts that opened themselves up, whether it be like clickbait or sort of taboola and outbrain and all of that kind of stuff, or whether it was facebook live or all of these other sort of features or things that appear and they can be they can be genuine sort of fast forwards for the business or they can be just sort of distractions and so it's knowing which ones which ones are the right ones to pick and, and engage with um rather than oh, oh crumbs we're just we're just doing clickbait here this isn't driving any value but um oh we're driving billions of views it's like you're driving billions of views that are barely monetizable and you've got no quality that's distinctive in the marketplace. So you've, you've got to, we were very fortunate, we had a very strong culture and a sort of a very strong understanding of what we really meant to to our sort of core fans. We were able to stick to that. And do you think that in the world of the, call it the big boys or the established uh, uh, established companies starting to leverage the rights that they have and the obvious access that they have for shoulder content. Is there an opportunity for more uh, or uh, other companies like Copa90 or 433 or, you know, uh, any of these uh, content-led houses who are doing stuff for themselves as opposed to, you know, content production agencies, which is a whole other thing. Is there space for that in the market? Is it something that's going to continue? Or do you see the rights holders slowly starting to squeeze in and, and, and take that out? Talking as a rights holder yourself now. Yeah, I think it's, um, uh, that there is space, there will continue to be space. Um, uh, whether the sort of, the economics of that really play out for the number of players that you've got within there. But you look at the likes of, say um overtime or house of highlights or um or just sort of br bleach report and its transition into br there will those are sort of those are three businesses within five six seven years of each other that are sort of iterations of the same theme but deployed in different ways for the sort of the, the platform of the day and they're able to do that because they're quicker and they're faster than the the older established ones so i don't I don't think there'll ever be a case that there is an opportunity for, for innovation and the ability to, to grow value around those. The, the, the challenge is with those in particular is if it's not on your own owned and operated platform, what is the actual enduring value that you have within it? Because obviously with those businesses, this obviously isn't anything new, but with a, with a Facebook, a, a YouTube, a TikTok, they're platform businesses and the majority of the economics accrue back to the platform. They don't accrue back to the content owner. And so that's the challenge with those. I think there's always um, a temptation being uh, the rights owner to say, oh, well, those guys are, are telling a really good story about my sport. I should be doing that. Um, that I should be the only one that tells that story about that sport. And that's where I think in particular with, with the likes of the NBA internationally, they've um, 
again, they're in uh, that sort of fortunate position where international is really about obviously audience growth for them probably first rather than sort of necessarily um, revenue uh, as as important as that. Not not saying obviously of course they've got tremendous audience and revenue in China, so that sort of breaks that that rule of that last sentence. But what they've been able to do is to really be very sort of open and pragmatic to exploring what different fans internationally want to do with their own content rather than being very prescriptive around it. And that, I think, is is a playbook that lots of the, the top, top soccer clubs have done um, to, to great success and actually realised they can't monopolise all the voices in the room. And actually, there's no... From a fan's point of view, you don't want to just have that sort of single voice. You actually want to have those different trusted voices within there. And your role as the rights owner or the club or the league or whatever is a valid voice in that room. But you're only valid for certain things that they're going to believe you for. It's like um, when uh, when you sort of work with, with bigger sort of organisations like FIFA or others and stuff like that too. It's like, yes, you want to be the friend of the fan. That's great. But you do pay the referees and officiate and things like that and they really want you to sort of sort of be a guardian of the game and a custodian rather than their cheeky mate if you see what I mean so you've kind of got to figure out what you're what you're really there to do and where you really create the value and you can't create all of the value for yourself you have to sort of cultivate partners in that ecosystem and if they are an unofficial partner in that ecosystem but they're doing it well they're propagating and growing the audience and supporting the community that is only a good thing for the games. You kind of have to be sort of um, bigger, bigger than it. Hmm. And having now transitioned into uh, uh, into kind of the rights holder side and being uh, being from the inside, what 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 has changed? Has anything surprised you? Um, and I'm also interested, sort of a two part question. How does that balance between growing an audience and monetizing an audience shift? for you because you know when uh, obviously it's extremely important with a startup to be focused on growing an audience but then monetizing it pretty quickly in order to show revenues and and and, and get there um but there are countless examples out there of big established brands pushing content and started or rights holders i should say big established rights holders pushing content out there without necessarily looking at the bottom line but saying that they want to grow an audience in order to then monetize it down the line how has kind of coming inside the fold um colored that view of the world for you well you you really see sort of how your bread is buttered if you see what i mean in terms of the value of mm. we're a we're, we're a content focused sort of um commercial rights holders so we we produce the um uh the live content for the atp tour and we then take that to market and sell it and so that's and when we deliver that back to um to, to the atp tour and the tournaments within it that is a significant sort of leg of their of their of their revenue and so we're very focused on maximizing the commercial value of of live tennis um and sort of quality premium production of that and so it you you're obviously very focused on that's where uh that's where you you generate revenue and obviously it's again it's no, no secret that um pay tv has paid uh sort of driven the value for rights holders but hasn't necessarily driven the scale of audience hence sort of why we're seeing um this sort of challenge around social platforms which have the audience but don't have the have the revenue because it's, it's their platform and it's their terms 
I think one of the particular sort of changes that we've started to see um, in sort of more recent years is starting to see people sort of challenging or, or filling new ground that wasn't there before. I think a, a, a in particular one is the the guys at Buzzer, for example, I think is really, really interesting where mm. I said, oh, I haven't drawn the drawn the chart of it, but you can imagine kind of you've got sort of this is your your value of live rights when it's with your your pay TV or broadcast partner. And it's kind of like, let's say it's 10 bucks effectively. And here is the value of those rights the second they turn into a highlight and they're on YouTube and they're worth 25 cents, let's say, or 10 cents. What Buzzer uh, are looking to do with with their technology and their platform is for um, a younger Gen Z audience that really values sort of experiences, but also there's that sort of ephemeral nature of um, of live moments, but they want to be a part of them. Is is there an opportunity through technology for us to take before that ten bucks turns into ten cents? Can we actually turn that into uh, a dollar rather than it going straight into a highlight? And so um, that technology and thought obviously didn't exist um, a few years ago or so and it was very kind of binary but between those areas and at the same time too you look at um, just from a UK point of view um, sort of maturity in, in the right sense of the word and sort of um, confidence in the respective roles between whether it's like a um, uh, Sky have done this in the past where they've had sort of national moments of sporting significance and they've done a, a deal with, with Channel 4 to get it on a free-to-air broadcaster because they realise this is a very big moment. Um, not everybody's going to see it if it's only on our platform. We're not going to acquire those people, that audience, to our platform just for this moment. So actually, let's get it out there, grow the audience, the sport wins, more people are aware that this is a fantastic competition and if they want to see all of that competition next time, they know the where where to come for, for it, and um, and that shows a sort of a maturity and a confidence in the respective roles that um, different parts of that ecosystem ecosystem sort of play, and certainly um, that is uh, yeah. Th there's more nuance, but confidence I think around there um, in terms of. Uh, who's providing the value and what the trade-offs are between there. That said, obviously people still want, from the point of view of a, um, uh, as that sort of primary rights partner, you wanna have as much of it as possible on your on your platforms at the expense of others, particularly if you have a premium rights mm -hmm. like, like, um, like tennis or, or anything else. I wanna take you back to the, you know, um, uh, comment about the ephemeral nature of uh, a younger audience and kind of how much attention they actually pay. Um, and, you know, I'll take it to my, my, my five-year-old and my two-year-old, for example. Indeed, like they will watch, you know, anything for 20 seconds um, uh, and, and then like switch off unless it's something that really grabs their attention, right? Unless it's something that's really exciting. And sort of um, slightly less anecdotally, you see that some of the numbers for, for example, Drive to Survive or The Last Dance or, you know, naming a lot of Netflix things, but, you know, even All or Nothing or, you know, some yeah. of those, uh, what, what, what we would call non-live rights, short, but, um, you know, shoulder content, have actually drawn in a very, uh, a, a much younger audience than the traditional uh, audience that those sports drive um, and actually uh, have uh, have pretty high engage engagement rates and also in some cases like Drive to Survive have 
fundamentally changed the business outlook of uh, of of an organization so do, do, do we think as you know relative dinosaurs <clears throat> excuse me, in this, uh, uh, you know, in this age as, you know, uh, as, as, as we grow older and we see our kids grow bigger. It, do we think that that is true? Or is it about an appetite for content changing, an appetite for the type of content that they want to consume changing and that they will sit and watch? Have you looked at that at all? Is it something that's, that's, that's crossed your radar? I'm curious in your view. I think it, um, uh, and everybody's got kind of these focus groups of one or two or three, depending on how many kids they've got sort of at home. Um, <laughs> we, we, we mainly watch uh, David Attenborough programs with the kids. So I can tell you all about, uh, they, got like a, they got a dramatized um, uh, safari series called Serengeti, which is very good, actually. I'd, I'd thoroughly recommend that. But um, yeah, the, the sort of attention, attention pans, uh, spans are short if you, if you sort of breed that nature of attention span and it's kind of, it's like with, with, with daily mail, um, they only want clips of a certain length. Articles are only 300 words in length. They're yeah. driving that behavior type. It's this, and sort of TikTok is that played out to the nth degree, but at the same time too, you have a world where TikTok exists next to Netflix and the watch time, the, the, and uh, the, con the continued watch time in terms of the sort of the, the binge viewing culture, they're happening. It's the the same audience is doing the same thing, sort of the two different behaviours, but it's the same audience. And so, I don't think it's um, again back to that sort of piece around uh, sort of confidence in understanding and, and one's role within there. You don't see Netflix going right. We need to make loads more like hyper hyper short form. Um, they didn't sort of when Quibi raised all of that money. Netflix didn't suddenly turn around and go right. That's it. We need to start chopping everything up into six minute chunks um so I, I think it's if you if you are in that position where you have an audience and you under on your platform and you understand their behaviors and it's um it's positive then you, you can deliver more to it it's part of the challenge is if you're an i sort of a, an ip owner or a rights owner in the middle of it where actually your own platform isn't terribly big and you have to be on everybody else's platform you it can be very confusing because you've got to be you've got to be uh or would love to be a two-hour long-form uh sort of character-led piece but you've also got to be sort of 15 seconds of madness on your on your instagram reels so it's sort of that is the the thing that i think from a a rights owner point of view fortunately they've um across the sports industry they've got very smart people in there that understand that but it's still from the sort of stakeholders and decision-making end of it, it can seem like a, a total sort of milestone of like, well, how can these things exist? It's like, well, that's the, that's the modern media landscape. And again, looking at proportionately how you create value across those different audience types <clears throat> is, um, is again, what you've got to be able to have an informed, uh, yeah, informed vocabulary around within the business to understand exactly why are you doing that? It's not throwing off loads of cash, but it's, uh, creating a new audience um, and a new audience opportunity, uh, but we are monetizing it in this way, and we're able to to actually articulate that. It's when you go into some some bigger organisations where um, they're not really able to tell you why they do social stuff, and it's like that's just like a fundamental issue. You should be able to to articulate that. Your broadcast team should understand that, mm. um, as well as obviously your your social team that understand it. 
So speaking speaking about that, the the, the tennis world has had a uh, recent big announcement with uh, the tie up with Netflix uh, and the documentary series that's going to be coming. Um, uh, I I know that you have had uh, a hand in that, uh, along with the rest of the tennis world. And um, for those for those that don't know, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting, perhaps in a uh, different forum to discuss how tennis is actually managed worldwide it's 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 quite an interesting kind of um setup but what can you tell us about um about that deal and uh what the objective uh what the objective of it is how are you uh kind of positioning at it looking at it in terms of the um audience growth and positioning tennis as a sport for the future well it's it's a it's a, it's a really exciting really exciting project and it's sort of unprecedented in terms of um, that the four Grand Slams and, and both tours have come together um, around a single creative project, which is which is r- really fantastic. And the the partners involved with it are, are Netflix, uh, and it's the production company behind Drive to Survive, um, which is called Box to Box. And they've made um, they made Senna. They won an Academy Award for for Amy. And, and Drive to Survive is this sort of force of nature on. Um, for, for for new F1 fans, and so if th- there's been such a sort of an amazing precedent set with with Drive to Survive, and from a, a tennis point of view, if tennis is able to enjoy just a fraction of what Formula One has been able to enjoy across there, um, that would be transformative for live audiences, for people attending events, and for the players um, the players involved themselves as well. And I was I was reading a an article about um, the sort of the, the, the trend around it the other day. Um, I think it was on Joe Pompliano here on his um, on his podcast. But it's not it's not a new trend to tell long form storytelling around sports, whether it's sort of been done by HBO and others, um, Hard Knocks, all of this stuff. Um, it's not um, uh, it, it's not sort of a new thing, as it were. It's just there's a um, what it, what is new now is that, that the scale of the Netflix platform and the sophistication of their ability to um, uh, sort of uh, enable the right content to be discovered at the right time and then to just take off is is the sort of the unprecedented nature of it because it's so ubiquitous of, the, of their sort of price point around it and so that is where um the the ability for for tennis to be um to have a sort of a real sort of beacon series like this in front of a new audience is is really exciting for for everybody involved what are your hopes for it very good question really i mean from a um having like being a massive drive to survive fan and just netflix fan in general and all of that it's if the ability to show um a side of this this sport um which is very i mean all sports say the unique it's, it's very unique and i came into the sport for the first time about a year ago and one of i remember going to um to the, the paris masters last um last november time and i was staying in the in the player hotel and uh what i found strange was that you're you're sat there at breakfast and the players come down there having breakfast and they're sat over the table from that guy that they've got to beat that afternoon at seven o'clock. Um, and 
they they mm. live with them on a tour day in day out they're friends with them they're friends with their coaches they know their managers or they might know their mum and dad but they've got to beat them um and if they don't beat them it's it's uh it's sort of um it's very sort of binary in that sense and if you are really successful in that tournament you two are the last two guys left in the hotel it's like that sort of you know that night before you go back you know, that night before you go back to school and you're sort of like uh, like, oh god it's like that's if you're really successful that's the that's the sort of the feeling that you get more often than the other lot so it's it's a very it's a very sort of unique and and sort of strange existence that um uh the sort of the the, the tennis players um have to live within and i'd never even considered that as an outsider before and i just think that is the tip of the iceberg in terms of just the um the types of sort of for a, for a player experience, they're probably totally used to that. They've been doing it five, six years. It's not a thing. But as an outsider, what I'm hoping for is that there are lots of parts of the sort of the professional experience that are now going to be um, sort of put in front of new audiences to consider. And they're going to relate to it in different ways that, that nobody's sort of considered before. So um, I'm I'm just, just very excited about what... Um, uh, sort of filmmakers and storytellers of that quality can can do excellent well look we're uh, we're, we're coming up to the 40 minute mark for this podcast which is the magical number so we'll start magical to number. we'll start to wrap it up <clears throat> but as we as we wrap it up um i just wanted to to ask you a final question around having taken that jump from consultancy to you know an outside organization in the uh, uh, in the sports industry kind of looking in and trying to hustle and, and and do stuff and generate stuff and build an audience and engage people to now being on the flip side um in a rights holder where you know you're looking to try and generate big checks but you're also looking to appeal to a new audience um look look in your crystal ball for us a little bit and tell us where do you see the next iteration because your journey has has been a very interesting one in terms of coming from different types of organizations but also growing up with the changes to the media landscape itself right you mentioned how copa 90 started as a youtube channel and then started doing a distributed model and then you start to look at building your own obviously at atp there's uh, tennis tv which is the owned platform uh, where a lot of content goes out but then there are broadcast deals worldwide with multiple different organizations for for, for the for the tennis tournament where, where where do you see things going and where do you see um technology helping to uh, uh to take that next step in the sports media landscape it's not the ultimate question, Yanni. So it's totally a nice, a nice concise question, right? Nice oh, and yeah, simple. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, you know, I've got. Yeah, I've, I've totally got that nailed. So, um, yeah, next question. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so it's. Uh, I, I think the. I mean, fr from the from the point of view of um, of, of our sport, it's around flexibility to that commercial landscape, and obviously technology enables that sort of flexibility. So, for example, with with tennis TV. The, the team have replatformed that over the last year so it's more flexible so it can be much more of a partnering solution to our to our broadcast partners um, and be a part of that solution for them rather than um, sort of a, a sticking point as it were um, so it, it sort of technology enables that sort of flexibility because if there's one thing um, and we sort of we write sort of five year five year plans which is a really 
good sort of discipline to go through. It's like when your mum tells you to write diaries when you go on holiday and you're not really sure why why you do it, but actually when you read them back afterwards, you're like, oh, that was that was good. I'm glad I did that. Um, but it's sort of that, that mm. sort of discipline to it helps you ask that question: What did we miss that we knew we that we we knew about and that we shouldn't have missed? Um, and mm. uh, that's a really good sort of process to to go to go through. And so you look at that and you stand there and you say, okay where are large audiences going to be in the next five, 10 years? It's like, okay, well, we have to have something there in that case. We have to be investing in those areas. We can't, there are certain things, um, I hate quoting Donald Rumsfeld too much, but it's those sort of known unknowns, if you see what I mean. You know something's going to happen out there. Yeah. Um, so you need to be ready and flexible to it. And at the same time too, in, in, a, in a sport like tennis that is uh, sort of fragmented in terms of, how it goes to market different sort of the tours versus the slams and all of those sorts of things the ability to aggregate aggregate um as much of it as possible and make its discovery uh and enjoyment as easy to do as possible um is is really really important to that and the more that that happens um uh, the more value can be created for everybody, whether that's fans or whether that's rights owners or, or um, broadcasters and platforms and partners and advertisers in between. So it's about technology enabling flexibility, um, as well as also um, bringing together the, the sport as uh, uh, as effectively as possible so it can be found and discovered and, and time spent. Excellent. Well, this is this is going to go down in uh, sports law podcast history as uh, as having quoted both Mrs. Bourne in uh, telling you to create a diaries and also Donald Rumsfeld, which is the first time that he's been quoted. So congratulations yeah, and, on that. And thank you. And, and if you if you met my mother, you'd realize she's very close in character to Donald Rumsfeld anyway. So it's, um, uh, <laughs> it's, it's quite, a, quite wow. a scary, quite a scary comparison. She's quite a fearsome woman. Excellent. Well, it, it will have taken a fierce woman to raise such an excellent character. Um, Nick Bourne, Chief Strategy Officer of ATP Media, thank you so much for joining us on the Sports Law Podcast. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me. And just a reminder to everybody to uh, subscribe and uh, like us, give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Go to sportsloft.co and sign up to our newsletter and follow us on social at sportsloft.hq. In the meantime, uh, until the next one, have a wonderful time and thank you for joining us in the Sports Loft. Goodbye.